There are very few places left in the world where people still profess to believe in central planning, uh, believe that it works. One of them is European Central Bank, another is the Federal Reserve. And the, uh, the Federal Reserve even has an econometric model uh, full of magical multipliers and Phillips curves. And with this, they can predict the future and thereby uh, abolish booms and busts, I think. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, Dorothy. Um, the, uh, as Alan Meltzer de demonstrated earlier in this morning, however, the Fed isn't doing a lot of long-term planning at all. They seem to be reacting to uh, monthly gyrations in the data and even to periodic rumors about, uh, oh, gee, a double-dip recession is just around the corner or uh, deflation. Deflation, even as uh, M2 has increased by 10% over the past year and as CPI increased by 3.9%, they still talked about that. Amazing. And what we used to call monetizing the debt uh, had a, has a new name. It's now called quantitative easing. Well, all easing is quantitative. And uh, pu publicly held federal debt increased by $2.9 trillion from the end of March 2009 to the end of June 2011. And of that, the Federal Reserve bought 38.7% of the new debt, not to mention another trillion dollars of dodgy mortgage-backed securities. Well, for the Fed, this has been pretty good because profits were up, up above uh, 80 billion, 81 billion in the second quarter almost, up from uh, 35 billion in 2008. Through some incestuous relationship, that money goes back to the Treasury Department. We pay interest to the, never mind. Very strange. Uh, meanwhile, the, the, the regulators are prodding the commercial banks to also buy uh, government paper because it's considered, you know, much safer and uh, risk is defined as, re reducing risk is defined as lending more to the government, less to the private sector. Between the third quarters of 2009 and 2011, bank lending to the private sector fell at a 5.5% annual rate while purchases of treasuries and agencies increased at a 12.4% rate. This is during the recovery. Faced with, a, with an obvious problems of too much debt, the Fed reasons that debt is bad, but we need more credit. Uh, monetary stimulus, after all, is defined as keeping interest rates really low below the inflation rate uh, to subsidize big borrowers, which turns out to be the government and the banks, uh, at the expense of prudent people, which turns out to be seniors like me. No mortgage, no debt. What a fool I am. Uh, if, if it worked, this intended stimulus to, to spending would come uh, from borrowing against the future. The trouble with that, as Europe found out, is that sooner or later the future arrives, and then what do you do? So in short, U.S. monetary policy, to me, seems to have become a, a particularly in the past year or so, uh, a risky, high-stakes game with no rules and no limits on betting, and they're betting with your money. Um, now, as the moderator of this panel, my main function is to be moderate, as I obviously am. Uh, fortunately, we have three distinguished panelists who are not as shy as I am. Um, first up, whoa. Just a second. Ah, Jim Grant. Not that I don't know Jim Grant. 
First up is James Grant, who is the uh, veteran financial journalist, historian, founder of Grant's newsletter, which is a fortnightly on uh, investment markets. He be began in uh, writing in 72 in the Baltimore Sun, a year after I began writing. He's a much younger man. Uh, and in 75, he joined Barron's, where he originated the current yield column. He's the author of many books, including uh, most recently, Mr. Speaker, The Life and Times of Thomas B. Reed, Mr. Market Miscalculates, and John Adams' Party of One. He's written in the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. He is, in my judgment, the most entertaining financial writer out there, and that's, I hate to say that because I'm one of them. And he's appeared on uh, 60 Minutes, Charlie Rose Show, CBS Evening News, Wall Street Week for 10 years. Uh, he's going to tell us, he's going to talk to us about the cumulative effect of history. Jim? Uh, we've heard a lot this afternoon about the past. Uh, sometimes uh, um, uh, the speaker has sounded uh, rather longing concerning the past, and one suspects uh, from time to time that we collectively, we hard money people are in danger uh, to falling into a kind of nostalgia. Um, I would like to uh, preempt any suspicions along those lines by observing that uh, while in technology and science progress is cumulative, that is we stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, in finance and indeed in politics, progress seems to be cumulative. That is to say, it's cyclical, which is to say, alternatively, that we keep on stepping on the same rake uh, so uh, um, I am going to uh, compare and contrast our present-day regulatory arrangements uh, with those in force uh, yesteryear, um, and you can judge uh, whether we have uh, gone forward or a step backward. Um, uh, I contend to you that the problem in our banking arrangements is not a shortage of capital. It's rather a shortage of capitalism. Um, uh, before the, uh, um, the coming of, of, uh, of the Fed and the FDIC and of the doctrine that some big, dumb banks are too big and dumb to fail, before all that, um, uh, safety in, in banking had an economic value. Um, uh, the great banks of yore were built on the reputations um, of their founders and of their managers. Uh, there was a bank in New York uh, called the Chemical Bank. This was absorbed subsequently um, into the great maw of J.P. Morgan Chase. But uh, Mr. Williams ran the Chemical Bank late in the 19th century. When asked for the secret of su his success, he replied, the fear of God. That was before Sheila Bear. <laughs> uh, uh, in those days, um, uh, uh, interesting institutions and usages prevailed in our banking system. For example, um, uh, nationally chartered banks um, um, uh, had stockholders who were susceptible, were at risk of a capital call in the event their institution was impaired or became insolvent. That is to say, um, if the bank hit the wall, the sheriff came looking for you, the stockholder, for a subsequent um, tranche of, of capital you were obliged to pay in. Uh, and the theory behind that was that it wasn't the state's bank, it wasn't the government's bank, it was your bank, you the owner. Um, one of the difficulties, I think, perhaps an important or a central difficulty of our time in finance is the, is, the, is the large and widening wedge between those who take risk on the one hand and those who bear it on the other. And um, 
I would like to illustrate that with examples from the present and the past. Um, uh, you know, uh, Tom Stoppard uh, cleverly remarked that uh, um, it's not the voting that counts. Um, uh, that's not democracy. It's not the voting that counts. It's the, uh, it's the counting. Um, and so too, um, in finance these days, it's not the investing and the lending that are so very important. It's the regulatory definition of prudence that seems to be paramount. Um, uh, these regulatory definitions can be capricious. Uh, they can be unfathomable in their complexity. The Dodd-Frank law runs to 2,230 odd pages um, and no one, uh, especially the co-authors, seem to know exactly what's in it. Um, let me uh, give you a real life example of the arbitrariness and the dangers inherent in modern complex regulation. I'm going to ask you to compare uh, one of America's largest banks with Germany's number one bank. This comparison, I hope, will illuminate the difficulties in regulation and also underscore the nature of the problems in European finance. Very timely. So Deutsche Bank is the German bank. Um, and uh, uh, by coincidence, Deutsche Bank and J.P. Morgan Chase show almost exactly the same top line in their balance sheets. One is in euros and one's in dollars. Therefore, Deutsche Bank is like 40% bigger in value. Uh, but they look like fraternal twins, uh, but they are not. They appear to be identical. For example, in, 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 um, in uh, capital to risk-weighted assets, capital to risk-weighted assets both show a ratio of about 15%. They seem to be on that basis identically sound. But bear in mind that the definition of risk is one that the regulators make, not one that the bankers make. Uh, Deutsche Bank uh, um, has risky assets equivalent to 15% of its overall assets, say the regulators in Europe. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase has 53% of its assets deemed risky according to its minders here in the United States. In general, European banks get off much more easily with respect to the definition of risk. Um, leverage, I mentioned that on the, on the basis of assets to, as defined, uh, to capital as defined, uh, they appear to be identical. However, if we strip away the arbitrariness of regulatory definition, Deutsche Bank is hugely levered, purely on the basis of assets to owner's equity. It is leveraged 43 to one versus 12.6 to one for J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, if you take tangible assets, never mind goodwill, tangible assets to tangible equity, Deutsche Bank is levered 60 to 1, 60 to 1, compared to 17 to 1 for J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, throughout Europe, these big banks are enormously levered, and if they're like Deutsche Bank, they are highly, highly dependent upon, um, uh, upon non-stable sources of funding, namely bought funds. In the case of J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, um, stable sources of funding represent 71% of the balance sheet, whereas for Deutsche Bank, just 36% of the balance sheet. So this is, a, this is our modern regulatory regime in action. Um, you can't tell the players without a regulatory scorecard, and the definitions vary from region to region and from regulatory regime to regulatory regime. Everyone, it seems, is consulted except the people who run the institutions. We have gone from uh, a system of regulation to one of micromanagement. Um, uh, there is, it seems to me, a clear and present danger in this. And to illustrate that danger, I want to ask you to imagine 
but imagine, to hear me out as I describe how regulation was conducted uh, before uh, the coming of the great federal Leviathan. Um, the year is now 1842, the city is New Orleans. Uh, there has been um, a run or two. The city fathers are sick of it. They want a stable banking system. Uh, the powers that be come together and they form what they regard and what history has indeed judged to be a simple, effective, um, and um, uh, intelligible regime of regulation in the context of a free market. And what the banks did was this. They said, okay, uh, we will divide the balance sheet into two parts. We will call the liquid part uh, the movement and by the movement they meant that uh, the loans in this part of the balance sheet uh, were self-liquidating loans. They were made against merchandise that would be sold and during the sale of this merchandise, the cash would come back to the lender, self-liquidating. And those assets would be set against the depositors' funds. So the depositors' funds would have against them gold and these self-liquidating loans. That was the movement. Uh, the second category was called the dead weight, most descriptively, the dead weight. Dead weight uh, were those assets that could not be realized quickly or, or automatically, and they would include long-dated loans and mortgages. And the owners were allowed to invest in dead weight kind of assets. It was their money. They could do as they chose. The banks had to protect the depositors first, and they had to disclose the breakdown of their balance sheet along the lines of the movement and the dead weight once a week to the regulators and once a month to the stockholders. And this system on the authority of Bray Hammond, the great historian of banking, one of the great historians, we had several with us today, this system uh, worked beautifully for fully a generation in finance, 25 years. Um, in conclusion, I submit to you that what is wanting um, in, in the micro um, regime of our finances, that is to say in the regulatory regime, what is wanted um, is clarity, simplicity, and elegance. The characteristics that we associate quite properly with, it, with the gold standard. The gold standard simply, simplicity and clarity and elegance had, had its analog in a system of regulation in which the, those who took the risk also bore the risk, in a system in which the capitalists got only not only got the upside, but they also bore their fair share of the downside. Um, I have my office at 2 Wall Street at the corner of Broadway, and I am therefore, we are therefore occupied. Uh, we don't cotton to a great deal of what these noisy guests of ours clamor about, uh, but we are as one with them on the notion uh, that uh, capitalism is about loss as well as risk. Let there be capitalism. <laughs> Our next speaker, Kevin Dowd, is a visiting professor at the Cass Business School in London. And um, he's also an adjunct fellow at Cato and is affiliated with other groups in China, Berlin, you name England, you name it. Um, highly regarded author of, of, of a finance text called Measuring Market Risk and of a popular book, Alchemists of Loss, How Modern Finance and Government Inter Intervention Crashed in the Financial System. 
2010 book. And he co-authored that book with uh, Martin Hutchinson and also Gordon Kerr, who contributed to the paper he's going to deliver. It has the uh, upbeat title. You kind of need something like that as, the, as we wind down here. The Coming Fiat Money Cataclysm and After. Thank you, Alan. Um, good afternoon, everybody. I thought in, in the light, uh, to set the tone, really, or to follow the tone, I thought I'd like to cheer you up with uh, a, an uplifting anecdote from the Weimar hyperinflation. And this concerns a gentleman who passed away and left his wealth to his two sons. The one son then did all the right things. He invested prudently in safe government bonds, and he was utterly ruined. The other son then did the opposite. He drank most of his inheritance, he wasted the rest, and then he made a fortune on the empty bottles. And my, my point is that I think this is where we're heading, both in Europe and in the United States. Now, obviously, as we know, states have claimed the right to manipulate money for thousands of years, but all such systems were created basically to finance government expenditures, and all of them led to major economic disruption and ultimate failure. Now, I would say that the same is happening again with the fiat system that prevailed since the 1970s. Remember that the underlying principle of this system is that central banks and governments can spend what they like, free of any real constraints. You just kick the can down the road. It's not your problem. The result is that the dollar has lost some 83% or more of its purchasing power, and we now face an escalating systemic solvency crisis. And yet, instead of correcting this crisis by painful solutions that are required, I think current policies are driven by a desperate attempt to postpone the day of reckoning. But as uh, somebody's already said, tomorrow eventually comes, and it's here. So just briefly, uh, going through this, I, I think if we look at the impact of low monetary policies as, a, as an easy start, we're all familiar, I think, with the Austrian malinvestment theory, et cetera, et cetera, which requires painful restructuring to get the maladjustments out of the system. We're also aware of the fact that low interest rate policies create destabilizing asset bubbles. Um, I would say that such intervention is wrong on principle and creates, creates a huge amount of unnecessary instability. A third effect has been almost unnoticed, a third effect of low interest rate policy, and that is to encourage the replacement of capital by labor, and therefore creates high unemployment. And one can see this if one compares current, the current situation with low interest rates with the high interest rates of 30 years ago. 30 years ago, we saw large-scale obsolescence of the capital stock and a very robust recovery in the, the job markets. Unemployment recovered very strongly. Now we have labor that is being substituted out and we see a level of long-term unemployment that is reminiscent of the 1930s. It's a very serious problem. And a fourth effect is to encourage outsourcing of jobs and even innovation abroad. And turning now to the financial system, the, uh, one has to say that state intervention here is profoundly damaging. Just to give one example, deposit insurance, this essentially creates a race to the bottom, culminating eventually in the collapse of the banking system. And to give you an example of, of the, uh, the kind of regulatory responses to this, namely capital regulation, 
the idea here is that we know that the banks are getting weaker, so we force them to increase their capital ratios. The fact is it just doesn't work. Uh, just to give you an example here, take uh, the rule in, in Basel, the international capital rule, that says that uh, a loan to a sovereign is a zero risk. That's still the case. So this is self-evidently nonsense, as Greece illustrates. It's also highly counterproductive because it incentivizes banks to, to, to hold sovereign government debt. And this, of course, is a key driver in the Eurozone crisis. That's just one example, but pulling them all together, we end up with a highly dysfunctional banking system that is only kept going by a combination of zero interest rates and state life support. We have a situation where the bankers no longer have any interest in the long-term survival of their own banks and are entirely fixated with their own short-term profit. So to cut to the chase, the modern investment banker's task is to construct a highly lucrative witch's brew, uh, basically gaming all these senseless rules. And the, kind of the, the ingredients of this witch's brew are accounting standards that allow them to record fake profits using dodgy models. We have compensation practices that allow these fake profits to be distributed. We have rating agencies that are just as conflicted as the banks, use the same dodgy models, etc., etc. And of course, underlying this, we have dodgy financial engineering, which enables bankers to slice and dice risks to maximum personal advantage. And so the bottom line is we end up with a situation where the banks can extract maximum rent from the financial system and thanks to government intervention from the rest of the economy as well. I would emphasize that these practices are continuing and that regulatory responses to control them have backfired spectacularly, giving rise to a whole new slew of securitization practices. And to give you one example is the failed sale arrangement. This is a transaction which basically enables banks to uh, get into hidden hypothecations, hiding the fact that their key assets have been pledged already. This deceives other counterparties who don't appreciate that those assets are not recoverable, so essentially they're fraud. And secondly, that the fact that these practices are known to be going on means that no one trusts the bank's balance sheets. So therefore they could have been tailor-made to destroy confidence in the banks. And then of course another growth industry is in gaming the bailout process itself. You know, cooking your books to secure a bailout and so forth, manipulating QE auctions, recycling your worst assets into securities that can be repoed to the local central bank, etc., etc. You have to remember that from the banker's perspective, the bailout process is itself just another profit opportunity. So it follows, I think, that another crash is inevitable. Now, in, in terms of responses to the crisis, it's obvious, I think, that the best response would have been to liquidate I'm quoting uh, Andrew Mellon's favorite, famous advice to Herbert Hoover, basically liquidate everything that moves, it'll sort everything out. Policymakers' response was quite the opposite. They did everything possible to stimulate the economy and put off uh, restructuring for as long as possible. And I would say that policies continue to be dominated by confusion on this uh, front, uh, confusion between causes and solutions, a refusal to acknowledge structural problems, an obsession with spending and stimulus. So, for example, Chairman Bernanke repeatedly pushes for low interest rates, good for the economy because it encourages investment, spending, boosts asset prices, encourages confidence, etc., etc., and various other things he wants. We would take issue with him on every point. 
I mean, lower interest rates were responsible for one boom bust after another. Each time the Fed's response was the same. Lower interest rates create another bubble. So obviously, low interest rates being key factors behind the crisis, they're obviously what we need more of that to cure it. Similarly, greater spending is a great idea, but I would simply say, well, of course, it's not much good if the spending is excessive and on the wrong things. As for confidence, well, confidence needs to be grounded in strong fundamentals and a predictable environment, not wild swings and, and vast amounts of policy discretion. On unemployment, why is the Fed creating unemployment with low interest rate policies that crowd out labor? And on deflation, for example, where's the problem with deflation? I mean, when the, boom, when the crisis t uh, initially occurred, we needed some deflation. It's a natural part of the correction process. So I think we've reached a point where the US central bank has amassed a huge discretionary power to itself. And I'd like to quote a former US president here, and you'll forgive, I hope, the, the limey accent. Basically, <laughs> the, the immense capital and peculiar privileges bestowed upon it enabled it to exercise despotic sway. The result of the ill-advised legislation which established this monopoly was to concentrate the whole moneyed power of the union with its boundless means of corruption and numerous dependents under the command of one acknowledged head. This gave it the power to bestow prosperity or bring ruin upon any city or section of the country as might best comport with its own interest or policy. Now the gentleman concerned was Andrew Jackson. And he was referring to the Fed's distant predecessor, the Second Bank of the United States. And he abolished it. Now then as now, I would suggest the natural answer is the same, end the central bank. These hegemonic institutions simply have no place in a free market economy. Then, of course, one could talk about the fiscal context. We all know about that. The bottom line here, U.S. spend like crazy, and for some reason, U.S. debt levels are now approaching danger levels. We also have to look at the long-term fiscal context and bear in mind that official U.S. debt is merely the tip of a very much larger iceberg Shortly before the crisis, Larry Kotlikov um, estimated U.S. debt, the unofficial U.S. debt, to be $100 trillion. That's real money. He's recently re-estimated it to be uh, $211 trillion. That's well over half a million for every man, woman, and child in the country. So bottom line here is that the U.S. is broke. So to sum up, we have state meddling has gotten to the country gotten the country to the situation where the banking system is insolvent, the Federal Reserve is insolvent, and the government is insolvent. So the whole system is insolvent, and it, the only thing it can do is collapse. I could say that a little bit, I'm out of time, talk about the short-term prospects aren't too good either. Um, but the bottom line is, current, current policies have been pushing up, staving off the inevitable, by pushing up the, uh, the price of treasuries. In other words, giving the bubble one last puff. But the bottom line is that the, a bubble does what bubbles always do. It will eventually collapse. When it does, we, so we have a situation where we have a bond market that's unsustainable, and the, the Fed has no safe exit strategy. At some point, investors will realize that this is a mugs game, and they will get out. And at that point, we face an almighty problem, because the, the, we, the Federal Reserve will either have to watch the bond market collapse and it will get a whipping 
that will make the mid-1990s, when the Carter administration got a kicking, that will look like a Tea Party. The financial system will then collapse. The alternative is even worse. It can prop up the bond market by monetizing the debt. That would mean monetizing all of it, because who the heck would not, would not want to, to have the, 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 the Fed buy up at, at par? In that case, we would see the, 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 the monetary base expand from 2.7 trillion to 17 trillion and basically hyperinflation. Just very briefly about solutions. Um, one can only hope that a future government recognizes this and, and does something about it. Clearly, we need a, 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 the right monetary standard. I, I'm a strong supporter here of the gold standard for all sorts of reasons that other speakers have already mentioned. Um, other reforms, I think, we need to end the Fed. We need reforms to re-establish effective corporate governance in banking. In other words, at a minimum, extending liability, personal liability of uh, key decision makers, the abolition of federal deposit insurance, capital adequacy, and all that nonsense. We also need uh, sound accounting standards. Otherwise, the, the basic calculations can't be done. And then going beyond all of that, we need a new constitutional settlement that reflects the lessons to be learned. And the key lesson here is the obvious one that governments and money don't mix. So what I would suggest here is we need a constitutional amendment that prohibits government involvement in the monetary system entirely. So a, it's, a, it's a free money constitutional amendment. And related to that, I think we need a second amendment that prohibits government bailouts of any sort this is to stop the future reintroduction of deposit insurance, uh, of new intergenerational Ponzi schemes and all this sort of nonsense. So therefore you want a kind of balanced budget amendment that rules out deficit finance on principle. Now I would say the medicine might seem strong, but the disease has almost killed the patient. And history tells us that anything less than this would leave in place the seeds from which a new catastrophe would doubtless emerge in the future. It's just a pity, I think, that we've had to learn this lesson the hard way. So thank you very much. Jim Grant has a plane to catch, and so I invited him to leave. Unless there's any strong objections, and if there are, it's too bad he's leaving anyway. I've been in that position. You just have to go when you've got to go. I've felt rather cheered up by that, actually, and it could have been worse. <laughs> Partly because I know how to ultra short long bonds. I just don't know when. Um, Kurt Schuler is a senior fellow at the Center for Financial Stability in New York, where he's the founder and editor of Historical Financial Statistics, a free online data set. And I, I was taught there's no such thing as a free data set, but there you are. Uh, Schuler was a senior economist of the Joint Economic Committee for many years. His extensive research on currency boards greatly influenced monetary reform in places like Estonia, Lithuania, Bosnia, and Bulgaria along with uh, some other colleagues, Steve Hankey and Richard Ron from Cato. Uh, he's worked on dollarization, free banking, central banking, with uh, uh, much of his research appearing in the extraordinarily illustrious Cato Journal. Uh, Kurt Schuller.
Thank you. My, my, my uh, presentation is a little more narrowly technical than some of the other ones, but it's on something that I think uh, interests everybody here, and that is the green stuff in your wallet. Um, I wrote this paper with Will McBride, who is also here in the back of the room, so you can uh, talk to him about it as well. In the, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, it was, it was common for there to be multiple brands of notes circulating. So you know, if, you look in, if you look in your wallet now, you know, if you're an American, not, not you, but everybody else, if you look in your wallet, there's just one brand of notes, that issued by the Federal Reserve. Uh, this was not always true in the United States. It was not true widely uh, elsewhere around the world either. So how did we get there? This, this paper is kind of uh, uh, about some aspects of that. So I'm going to talk about the past, the present, and possibly the, 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 the possible future. So first, the past. How did we get from, uh, from competitive note issue to monopoly? in almost every country in the world today. Uh, there were two, two major forces at work. So one, one was that a government monopoly of note issue was an easy way for the government to, to, to raise money. You know, back, in the, back in the 19th century, 18th century beforehand, um, the the vast bureaucracies we have today to collect taxes were beyond the administrative capabilities of governments. Note issue, a note issue monopoly like a salt tax or, or a, a customs duties or other, other, other things of that sort were within the administrative capability of governments of the time. So taking, uh, taking note issue away from the private sector and, and monopolizing it was, uh, compared to some other ways of, of possible ways of raising revenue, uh, fairly easy administratively. Uh, the other factor was that there were a number of economists who argued that note issue should be a government monopoly. And here I think the most uh, Im important one was probably David Ricardo, who was English economist, as many of you know, who lived about 200 years ago. Or sorry, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, 200 years ago. Uh, and he he, he w had great influence on subsequent English economists who were, became known as, the, as the, the currency school of thinkers. They in turn influenced uh, the, the British government. And so in 1844, the British government uh, enacted a law for, for England and Wales, which would eventually give the Bank of England a monopoly of note issue. Um, and because English economists were the uh, the most advanced in the world, kind of theoretically at that time, the English economy was, was the world leader. The example of English economists and the English economy were very influential elsewhere. Uh, so you know, event eventually you had, you had monopoly of note issues spread to almost all countries. Now I say almost all because there are a few cases today where people still use competing brands of notes. Uh, Larry White referred to them in passing. So that there, are, there are four cases today, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Hong Kong, and Macau. In Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, people use multiple brands of notes because when, 
when the, when the British government established the laws which monopolized, which eventually monopolized note issue in England, Scotland and Ireland were under somewhat, uh, somewhat different uh, legal regimes. And so to, to, to placate the banks there, they let the banks that were issuing notes at the time continue to issue notes, but they imposed rules on them such that uh, any increase in the notes that they would issue had to be backed 100% essentially by deposits at the Bank of England. Uh, so this, you know, over time with, with inflation and economic growth, this meant that the, the uh, amount that the, the banks had as a kind of a, 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 without specific reserve backing, dwindled to nothing and eventually the law was changed. So, so today in Scotland and Ireland as well as by the way in Hong Kong and Macau, notes which are, issue, which are issued by banks have to be backed 100% by deposits which are held at the monetary authority. This, so this is different from the way things worked in, in uh, un, under, under free banking systems where there was generally uh, no specific segregation of assets required against the issue of notes in, in, the, freest, uh, in the freest of the free banking systems. In, in Scotland, there are three banks that issue notes. In Northern Ireland, there are four banks. And Bank of England notes circulate also. Uh, now, in Hong Kong, as many of you know, there's a, uh, there's, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a currency board system. And this was established in 1935. It was established to replace a system of, uh, of free banking, which existed up until that time. So um, Hong Kong changed its monetary standard because of some problems that were occurring with the silver standard and the uh, and events in China in that time related ultimately to uh, bungled American policy regarding silver. So uh, in, in, in Hong Kong, rather than having the government, uh, the government take over the note issue and issue a single brand of notes, the government said, okay, you, banks, can, you, you can keep on issuing the notes, but you have to follow these rules now for 100% uh, foreign reserve backing for the notes in circulation. So in Hong Kong today, there are three banks that issue notes. Uh, Macau, which in many, uh, many respects has, has copied things that are done in Hong Kong, only started having uh, multiple note brands in the 1990s. Before that, there was just, there was, there was, uh, one bank that issued notes, which was, was which dated from the Portuguese colonial days, but uh, then as the approach came of the handover of Macau from Portuguese rule to Chinese rule, they let in a Chinese government-owned bank, which is uh, the, the, the Bank of China. So you've got you've got two banks issuing notes in Macau. Um, okay, so you have these you have these few fairly obscure cases of uh, multiple note brands circulating today. I think the main, the main thing that uh, we can you know, learn from them or maybe relearn from them is that as with the historical experiences of competitive note issue under, un, under free banking, you know, there, there's, no, uh, there's no evidence that note issue is a natural monopoly. You know, if you ask most people, well, why do we only have, you know, in the US, why do we only have the green stuff issued by the, by the Federal Reserve? I think most people would give you some kind of efficiency argument that it's you know, it's most efficient, there's some kind of a natural monopoly there. But if you look at the countries where there are multiple brands of notes in circulation, you know, there's no tendency for people to converge only on using one brand. So in Scotland and Northern Ireland, for instance, 
people also have the choice of using Bank of England notes. You know, everything's denominated in pounds sterling. There's, you know, one 20-pound note is as good as another one. But people continue to use multiple brands, you know, which suggests that there's some uh, benefit to consumers from this. Um, so, you know, yet again, when, when, in general in economics, whenever you come across an argument that something is a, a natural monopoly, uh, you know, your first instinct should be, no, it's not. I was trying to think today, what is a natural monopoly? Like the, the, only, the only example I could come up with is maybe the, the use of Arabic numerals. Um, and we, don't, we, don't use Roman, we don't use Roman numerals when we're adding up columns of figures, for instance. Uh, but, but other than that, just, just about any good you can think of, you find a uh, multiplicity of suppliers and um, multiplicity of features that, 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 uh, that consumers want. Okay, so that is... That is the, the present, uh, sorry, that, that's the present. Now, what about the future? Um, this relates to the, the, the only um, table in the paper. Um, my co-author, Will McBride, and I looked at every jurisdiction around the world where we could find some information to asking the question, where, uh, where is or where might or where might a uh, competitive issue of notes and coins be legal? So you know, the internet's great for this. If, you, if, we, if we tried to do this even, even 10 years ago, we would have had to spend months in the library. Instead, we will mostly do it from our desks. Uh, and, and we examined more than 240 jurisdictions. We found that the great majority of them did have some kind of law uh, stating that the issue of notes and coins is a government monopoly. There were, there, were, there were about 20, though, where it was either um, where, where there may be or definitely was, uh, was not this, this prohibition. So those are listed in the table and the paper. I commend that to you. Um, the most important case is right here in the United States. Uh, although, although the issue of coins is a government, government, government monopoly, and, and Larry White alluded to this earlier when he was talking about uh, Bernard von Nothaus, the issue of notes is not a monopoly. So uh, because of the, the, I think because of the inadvertence of legislators, changes that were made to U.S. banking laws in the 1970s and 1990s removed some features that had made note issue a de facto monopoly of the Federal Reserve. Now, there's nothing in the Federal Reserve statute that says only the Federal Reserve can issue notes. Now, uh, and that is, that is unlike the central bank laws of many other countries. So the way, it, the way that the de facto uh, monopoly had been accomplished in the, in the United States was that there were certain uh, restrictions about, about how banks could issue notes if they wanted to issue notes. And there, were, there was a prohib prohibitively high tax on banknote issues there was also, uh, there was also a, a regulation that notes had to be backed by certain bonds which were no longer in existence, uh, certain government bonds. Um, so in a, a clean-out of the banking regulations, these, these legal provisions were removed, uh, I think because nobody really thought through what the consequence was of it. So note issue could be competitive in the United States. Um, nobody's done it, though. I'm not. <laughs> and um, right, I, I, I think that this, uh, 
indicates that, that, that the, the um, statute law is not the only, is not the only barrier. You, you, have to consider, you have to consider regulations. Would, would, would certain kinds of regulations that are in effect be, uh, be enforced against somebody who tried to issue notes in a way that would be unfavorable? So you know, that, uh, I, 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 would, I would say that, that uh, statutorily, the language is, language is clear, but in terms of, in terms of practice, not, it's, not, it's not entirely clear whether somebody would able, be, actually be able to issue notes in the United States. And since, since I know there are uh, a lot of in entrepreneurs who are affiliated with uh, the Cato Institute or see its programs in one way or another, if there's somebody here or, or somebody out there on the internet who's watching this, I, I, I commend this to you as a, as, as a project I'd like to see uh, you know, I'd like to see whether what we think would work in theory and what has worked in practice in the past would work just as well in the future. Thanks.